First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Well, in Amos chapter 1, let's jump right in and look at the very first verse of this book, Amos 1, verse 1. And this is what we read, the words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. This book starts out in a very similar way to the book of Hosea that we looked at last week. It was written about the same time as the book of Hosea as well, in the middle of the 8th century before Christ. Notice that both Uzziah, the king of Judah, is mentioned as well as Jeroboam, the king of Israel. And that is because, as Dr. Thomas said last week, a civil war had happened in Israel by this time. And there was a separation between the north and the south. There were two kingdoms at this time, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. Now, Amos was from the kingdom of Judah in the south. He was from a village called Tekoa, just south of Jerusalem. And yet God sends him up to the north. He sends him with a message for the northern kingdom of Israel. Notice that Amos isn't a priest. He is not a prophet by training or by trade. In fact, later in this book, he will say, I am neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. Instead, he was a sheep breeder or a herdsman. The book says later he also harvested sycamore fruit. Well, what does that mean? It means that Amos was what we might call a layman. And as such, he really isn't trying to be all prim and proper in the way that he delivers this message. He's pretty blunt and pretty direct. Amos just lays it right out there. If you've read the book of Amos, you you know that. Of course, God called Amos because he was exactly the right vessel at the right time to deliver this very direct message from the Lord to the northern kingdom of Israel. Basically, a a quick summary of the book of Amos. At this time, uh, the people of Israel were living the high life. Uh, It was a pretty prosperous time. The people who were in charge, at least, were very well off. The book says they had multiple houses, Uh, They like to lay around on couches. They like to go to parties and all the rest. Now, spiritually speaking, they were still going through the motions of uh, religion and worshiping God. They still offered sacrifices. They still celebrated all the feast days. And so from the outside, it may have seemed like everything was going very, very well. But in the book of Amos, we find out that God saw things very differently. Because morally and spiritually, things were in a horrible condition. God saw the way that they were living. They were immoral. Uh, They were treating the poor people in the land terribly. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. And they had ignored. They had ignored every warning that God had sent them. And so finally, he sends the prophet Amos to tell Israel that judgment day was coming for them. If they did not turn... And seek the Lord. Now, unfortunately, we know from history that despite receiving this word from the prophet Amos, Israel did not turn and seek the Lord. 
And so about 30 or 40 years after this book was written, God sent the Assyrians. They came in and invaded the land and essentially wiped Israel off the map. Again, because they did not respond to the word of the prophet Amos that we're reading today. Now, in spite of that, I do want to mention this. The book of Amos does actually end on a high note. It ends with a promise about how one day the tent of King David would be set back up again. Of course, the Lord kept that promise. He began to keep that promise when the son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ, was born in Bethlehem. And when he went to the cross and rose again. And so this picture at the end of the book of Amos, a picture of blessing for the people of God, that is still happening. That will still happen for all those who turn to the Lord Jesus and trust in him. But with that said, again, for these people at this particular time, the lion was roaring, the judgment was coming, and it came upon them because they refused to listen to the word of the Lord. Here is the thing we need to remember, though, and we've been trying to remind ourselves of this every week in this series. This book of Amos is in the Bible because this is not just a word that God had for his people 2,800 years ago or so. This is a word that God has for his people in every age. This isn't just something God wanted to say way back then. This is something God wants to say right now. Something he wants to say to us today. Obviously, in the time that we have, we cannot study all nine chapters of uh, the book of Amos. I'd have to keep you here quite a while to do that. Uh, but I do want to ask you to turn with me to Amos chapter 5. We're going to read one main passage. We'll look at some other verses here and there as we go along. But this passage will be our focal text today as I believe we can see in these verses what the Lord wants to say to us. Amos chapter 5, starting in verse 18, and we'll read down to verse 24. God said, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast days. And I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. For I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water, and righteousness like a mighty stream. There are three clear messages from God to us in the verses that we just read. Messages from God through Amos to his people Israel, but messages from the prophet Amos to us today as well. Here's the first thing God is saying and was saying to them. Don't think that my judgment is coming for everybody except you. Don't think my judgment is coming for everybody else except for you. You, you can see that especially in verses 18 through 20. Again, in verse 18, God says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, 
for what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. You see, the people of God at this time in Israel, they were desiring, they were longing for the day of the Lord's judgment to come because they thought that when the day of the Lord came, it would mean judgment for all of their enemies. It would mean judgment for all of the nations around them that were not a part of the people of God. Uh, They thought it would be a day of blessing for them. They they thought they had a kind of special protected status and that nothing bad would ever happen to them. And you know, the way that Amos started out his message in chapter one and chapter two might have almost reinforced that idea that the day of the Lord was going to mean judgment for everybody else. If you turn back to chapter one for a moment and look at verse three, this is how Amos begins his message. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. So he's talking there about how judgment was going to fall on Damascus, which was in Syria. If you scan down just a few verses, you see he starts talking about Gaza and Ashdod and other Philistine cities, how they were about to be judged. Every time he comes to a new nation, he repeats that phrase for three transgressions and for four and if you keep scanning through these verses, you, you see these different nations that are mentioned. A few verses later, he talks about Tyre. And then he talks about Edom and Ammon. If you flip over to chapter 2, he starts to talk about Moab. And so, so far, he's already talked about six different enemy nations that God was going to judge. And then in chapter 2, verse uh, 4, he starts to talk about Judah. Now, Judah was the southern kingdom, right? That was where Amos was from. And Amos said one day judgment was going to come on the southern kingdom of Judah as well. And so at this point, if you can imagine, Amos is up in the northern part of the country. He's in the land of Israel. At this point of the message, he probably had assembled quite a crowd that were listening to what he was saying. And listen, so far, people loved what he was saying. They were probably saying, you know, I know this guy is a southerner, but I like this guy. I like this guy a lot. I like where this is heading, right? All of our enemy nations are going to be judged. Those people in the south that keep fighting with us, the people from Judah, they're going to be judged as well, but we're going to be fine. They were cheering Amos' message on. They were loving every word of it until he came to chapter 2, verse 6, when he turned his attention squarely upon them. And this is what he said. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four. I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. And then he goes on to talk about them for the entire remainder of the book. And what he says about them is far more thorough, far more direct, far more blunt than what he says about any other nation. And I'm guessing by that time, they probably didn't care for his message that much. In fact, I know they didn't because in chapter seven, one of their priests, a guy named Amaziah, tells Amos to take himself and his message and to get out of town and to go back to Judah where he thought he belonged. But of course, Amos couldn't go back home because God had sent him there. 
God had sent him there with this message, even if it was a message that they did not want to hear. God had sent him there to disabuse them of the notion that when judgment came, it was going to come to everybody else, but not to them. And so back in chapter 5 in our text, God says, what good is the day of the Lord to you? In other words, you want this day of the Lord to come. Listen, it's not going to be a day of sunshine and butterflies and rainbows for you. It's not going to be light for you. It's going to be darkness. It's going to be lights out when this day comes. In verse 19, Amos was basically telling him there's not going to be anywhere to hide. It's going to be like you're running away from a lion and you turn the corner and a big bear meets you. It's going to be like you run into a house to get you know, your breath for a second and you lean your hand against the wall and a snake crawls out of a hole and bites you on the hand. The expression we might use is you can run, but you can't hide. That's what this passage is saying. That God's judgment was going to be inescapable. Then we come to chapter 7 and 8 and God gives Amos a little sneak peek of what that judgment is going to be like. He gives him four visions. Gives him a vision of locusts, a vision of fire. Then he gives him the one that we're probably the most familiar with, a vision of the plumb line. What's a plumb line? Well, a plumb line is something builders still use today, right? Where you take a string and you tie a lead weight to it and you hold it down and you can hold it down over the side of a wall and you can let gravity do its thing and you can tell whether that wall is level or not. God was saying, I'm about to drop my plumb line down on the wall of Israel and I can tell you right now, it's not level. It's not standing up straight. It's leaning way over and in fact, it's about to topple down. And then the last vision was a vision of a basket full of ripe summer fruit. And God told Amos, my judgment is just as ripe as that fruit is. And it's about ready to come. All of this church, all of this would have been so shocking to the people of Israel. To hear this. Because again, they thought they were protected They thought they were special. They thought that when judgment came, it would come for everybody but them. And yet here is God's prophet, no less, telling them that when God's judgment came, not only would it not touch them, but it was going to come especially for them. It was going to come first for them. And that was a message they were not prepared or ready to accept. Now, what is the application of this for us? Well, obviously, we're not Israel. We're not living in the 8th century B.C. and the Assyrians are not about to come. What does this have to do with us? You know, I think it is easy for those of us who have been involved with the church, maybe throughout our lives, those of us who have grown up in church, or maybe those of us even as adults who have just been around church and kind of been around the things of the Lord, to think that when judgment comes one day, it will come to everybody else except us. I think it's easy for us to think, just like Israel thought, that somehow we're special, that we're privileged, that we're protected. But in actuality, what the Bible says is that to whom much has been given, much will be required. In fact, Israel was at this moment receiving a stricter judgment than the other nations precisely because they were the people of God. They were receiving a stricter judgment because they were the ones who had been given the law of Moses. The other nations hadn't. 
They, they were the ones who saw what God did in Egypt. They were the ones who walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. They were the ones who saw the power and the saving might of God's hand. And because they had seen all of that light, they were now more accountable to God than the rest. And the same is true for us. You know, people oftentimes want to ask that, that question about, you know, what will happen to those who live on some remote island who have never heard about Jesus? And that's a fair question to ask, but here, here's a better question to ask. What about those of us who have heard about Jesus? What about those of us, perhaps even in this room right now, who have heard about Jesus many times, but have not yet believed in Jesus? Or surrendered our lives to the Lord. This principle runs all the way throughout the Word of God. The more that we hear, the more that we are accountable. So the more a person has heard the good news of Jesus, the more a person has heard about what Jesus did at the cross, how he can forgive our sins when we come to him, and yet they have rejected it time and time and time again. Listen, we are only adding to the judgment that we will receive on that day because our sin of unbelief is not a sin of ignorance. It's a sin against the light that we have been shown. Israel at this time was looking forward to the day of the Lord because they didn't know what that day of the Lord was going to entail for them. You know, I hear people sometimes who say, you know, I just can't, almost offhandedly, I just can't wait for Jesus to come back. You know, when Jesus comes back, everything's going to be better. But perhaps some of the people who are saying, I can't wait for Jesus to come back, aren't really ready for Jesus to come back. Here's the truth. If you're looking forward to the coming of the Lord, make sure that you are ready for the Lord to come. You know, one of the scariest verses in this book is in chapter 4, verse 12, where God says this, Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. Wow. You know, we all need to be prepared to meet our God. Because the Bible says one day we all will meet our God. Are you ready for that? Because friend, if, if you haven't yet trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are not prepared to meet your God. I would say this also, I would say this if you're a believer here and you've trusted in Christ, but you know right now I'm not living for the Lord. I'm not really seeking him in my life. I've backslidden. There was a time where I was seeking the Lord, but that time is not right now. I would say to you, you're also not prepared to meet your God. I don't, I don't say that to mean that you won't be saved. If you're saved, you will be forever saved. But listen, I don't want the Lord to return and to find me off task to you. I don't want the Lord to return and I'm caught up with the things of the world and I'm not interested or living for the things of the kingdom. I want him to come back and find me 100% sold out for him. You know, we always need to be living the way that we want to be found when Jesus comes. Because he can come any day. That's the first message that God had for Israel and for us. Don't think my judgment is coming for everybody else except for you. Here's the second message God delivered through Amos 
to his people, he said to them, listen, don't think, you know, I'm good because I go to church. Here's what God said to them. Your worship services stink and I can't stand them. I mean, how is that for an honest assessment, right? But that's what God says here in this text, isn't it? You know, if somebody invites you to, you know, to go to their church and you go to their church service and maybe like you don't really like it, you know, for one reason or another, and they ask you like your opinion, you are like, like, what did you think of our church? You know, I'm guessing most people are not going to be that direct, right? Most of us aren't going to do that. You know, we might say, oh, you know, I mean, it wasn't my favorite, you know, might say, you know, the music was just, you know, only okay. And I mean, the message was just kind of so-so. Like the preacher was like really bald. I mean, it's like very bald. The light was like reflecting off of his head. It was very distracting, disorienting. I know none of y'all would say anything like that about our church service here today. but, But notice God is not that delicate in the way that he describes the worship of Israel at this time. In fact, I don't think he could have chosen more direct language than the language that he chose in these verses. He wants us to get the point. Look at verse 21. I hate, I despise your feast days. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fat and peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. Listen, in verse 21 alone, God says, I hate it, I despise it, and I don't savor it, which means I can't stand the smell of it. You know, something you probably need to know about me, I really can't smell much of anything at all. I just don't have a good sniffer, I guess. But that has been a great blessing when I'm in my minivan with my four sons. I I can't smell anything at all. It's fine. But I know not everybody has that. Some people have a much more finely attuned sense of, of smell. And sometimes there's certain smells, certain odors that kind of bother people. One of my sons, Titus, uh, has something like that where he just, for whatever reason, he just does not like the smell of mint. And pretty much every toothpaste in the world has mint. And so we have to find some that don't have mint for him. But whenever his brothers are brushing their teeth, Titus, like, he will not even be in the bathroom with them when they're brushing their teeth. One time, he even went and got a clothespin and put it on his nose so he didn't have to smell the mint. I don't want that minty smell. This is what God is saying right here. God is saying, if I had to walk through one of your worship services right now, Israel, I'd have to put a clothespin on my nose because I cannot stand the smell of it. Your worship services stink. You know, to sum up what God was saying in these verses, number one, he was saying, I hate it when you gather for worship. Number two, he was saying, I don't accept your offerings. I won't receive them. And number three, I can't stand your songs. In verse 23, he actually refers to the noise of their songs. Take away the noise of your songs. And it's not like he liked the orchestra any better than the choir. Because the very last phrase says, I don't want to listen to your stringed instruments either. I want the orchestra and the choir to go home. I don't want to hear it. Now, why was he saying that to them? Listen, they were trying to be very religious. They were going to their religious sites, to Bethel, to Gilgal. They were offering their sacrifices. They were singing their songs. They were celebrating the feast that Moses required. 
And they were probably, you know, they probably walked home from their worship services, kind of like we ride home in our cars from church. You know, there's, what a great time of worship that was at Gilgal today. What wonderful music, orchestra, fantastic. What a wonderful message. I should probably listen to that on YouTube a second time when I get home. Yeah, they're probably having that kind of conversation like we might have on a way home from a church service. And yet God's opinion, which by the way is the only opinion that really matters when it comes to worship, isn't it? God's opinion was, it stinks. And I don't even want to listen. Now again, why is that? It's because as you read through the whole book of Amos, it's crystal clear that their worship wasn't real. It was pseudo-worship. That's why the title of the message today is, I see your pseudo-worship and I don't like it. Because he didn't. He saw what they were doing and he saw through it and he saw that it was fake. He saw that they were going through the rituals of worship, the sacrifices, the songs, the traditions. But they weren't interested in a real relationship with God that actually changed the way they lived their lives the rest of the time. And here's the thing, and we see this all the way throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. God has no interest in fake religion. He wants a real relationship with us. But I'm afraid sometimes we're just as guilty and our worship isn't any more real than theirs. Sometimes we're just as guilty as just going through the motions. You know, we go to church because we've always done that. It's our habit to do that. So we go, we get dressed, we go, we bring your kids. Then we check the box. I've been to service. I gave my offering. Maybe I even went to a small group. That's like extra credit, right? Another point. And, and then we think, well, then, you know, I can go and, you know, from Monday to Saturday, I can kind of live however I want to because I paid my dues. And I'll come back again the next Sunday and I'll pay my dues again and I'll get back in good standing. That's not how it works. That's just empty religious pretense and God sees right through it. He wants a real relationship with us. He wants our hearts. He wants us to be fully committed to him and he knows whether we really are or not. And when I say fully committed to him, listen, I don't mean that we're gonna be sinless. We know that. We're not gonna be sinless until we're with him in heaven. But you know, there's a big difference between the person who says, God has saved me by his grace. He's done a work in my heart. I want to live for him. I want my life to honor him. And yet sometimes I stumble and I fall. And he has to pick me back up by his grace. There's a big difference between that and the person who basically is like Jonah and in their heart, they're running the other direction from God. And yet they're also playing the hypocrite and they're in church every Sunday because they want people to think that they're like that guy over there. And there's a big difference between those two things. And this book tells us God knows the difference. How do you know if you're just going through the motions? Well, I mean, for one thing, if you're on your phone right now and you want me to think that you're on your Bible app, but you're really playing Candy Crush right now, <laughs> that's probably a good indication. But friend, listen, if you're here and you are... Let me just ask you, are you really here, as far as you know your heart, are you really here to worship God? 
Are you here because you want to bring a song of thanks and praise to the God who has saved you at the cross? Are you here because I want to hear his word? I need to hear his word. I want to know what his word says because I want to live it out in my life. Are you here because you want to love your brothers and sisters well and you know it encourages them just for you to be here, just by your presence, you're spurring them on to love and good works. Is that why you're here? Are you here because you want to leave this place and from Monday to Saturday, you want to live for God's glory, you want to live for the good of other people, you want to bless them in Jesus' name until we gather back into this place again next Sunday? Listen, if that is why you're here, then your worship is a sweet aroma to God. It blesses him, it lifts him up, it brings a smile to his heart, it brings a smile to his face. But friend, listen, heaven forbid that our hearts would be as out of it as the Israelites were. Heaven forbid that we're just going through the motions, pretending to be a Christian on Sunday, but not living like one the rest of the week. Because if that's the case, then listen, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever would say the same thing to us that he said to them. He would say to us, I hate your worship services. And I don't accept your offerings. And I don't like to listen to your songs. Now, what is the solution if we find ourselves in that place? You know, is the solution to say, well, I guess I better not go to church then. You know, like if God hates my worship, maybe I just better not worship. Obviously, that's not what the Bible says, right? As we read the whole of Scripture, we're no, we know as believers we're commanded to worship. We're commanded to gather with our brothers and sisters and worship. We know we need to hear his word. No, that's not the solution. What is the solution? It's message number three. He's saying this to us, don't just go to church, but be the church in the way you live your life. That's why after critiquing their hypocritical worship that didn't change a thing about how they live their life, the passage ends in verse 24 with these words from God, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. That church is what God wants to see in our lives. He wants to see justice in our lives. Now listen, biblical justice is not the kind of social justice that you hear some people talk about today, which is really about kind of dividing us up into groups and making us hate each other. But biblical justice means that we treat people justly. It's about the way that we love our neighbors. It's about the fact that we look out for those who are poor and have less power. We look out for those and we defend the cause of those who are oppressed. It means that we're honest and we're fair in all of our business dealings and transactions. Righteousness, when you hear the word right in that, it's about what God considers to be right. That defines righteousness for his people. And that's what he wants to see. He wants us to be just and righteous in the way that we treat others, which was precisely what the people of God in Amos' day were not doing. In fact, one person put it this way. They were going to their worship services and they were getting down on their knees and they were praying to God. And then they were going out during the week and they were praying, P-R-E-Y-I-N-G, upon the poor people who were in the land. And you see that all the way throughout this book. We saw it in chapter two, verse six earlier where Amos said they were selling the poor for a pair of sandals. You see it again in chapter four, verse one. Here he speaks to the women, the wives of these wealthy bureaucrats. <laughs> and again, he's direct. He calls them a bunch of hefty cows. 
Look at it. He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine and let us drink. Turn over to chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. He says it again. Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, though you build houses of hewn stone for yourselves, right? Yet you shall not dwell in them. You planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes and diverting the poor from justice at the gate. And then probably my favorite example is in chapter eight, verse five and six, saying, when will the new moon be passed? In other words, they were just waiting for these feast days to be over so they can go and rip people off. When, when will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and even sell the bad wheat. Now, what does that mean to make the ephah small and the shekel large? Well, it's kind of like what's happening right now today, right? We know we have inflation that's at a very high rate right now. And you have some companies, and you may have noticed this, they don't want to raise the price too much because they might drive the buyer away. And so you can still get that bag of chips for $3.89. It's just if you look closely at the bottom, you're getting about a third less chips than you got in that same bag for that same price a year ago. Well, that's what they were doing, making the ephah small, making the amount smaller than what people thought they were actually getting and making the shekel large, raising the price. They were crooks. And they were doing other things too. They were charging exorbitant interest rates on the poor people that they could never pay off. And then when they couldn't pay it off, they actually were selling these people into slavery. And yet... These were the same people, to use our terminology, who were going to church every Sunday. They were singing the songs, they were bringing their offerings, and yet they were going out and ripping people off all week long in their business dealings. But they thought, they were so self-deceived that they thought, because I go to Bethel, because I go to Gilgal, because I make my offerings, that God is good with me. That he, he doesn't care about the way that I'm treating other people. But Amos told him God does see and God does care. He cared about the way they were treating other people in church. He cares about the way that we treat other people. Which is why Jesus said the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. In fact, you know, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, the standard church is even higher for us, right? The standard is not just that we wouldn't rip people off. That should go without saying. The standard is that we would do even more. Jesus says the standard is that we would even let ourselves be ripped off. Somebody compels us to go one mile, we go with them too. They sue us to take our cloak, we give them our garment as well. The standard is that when people abuse us and are mean to us and vindictive towards us, that we would bless them and do good to them in response. That is what Christ has called us to do calls us to not just go to church once a week. He calls us to be the church every day of the week. By his grace and by his power that he gives us through the Holy Spirit. Friend, are you, am I, doing that? I, I know this is a hard message from Amos. Like I said earlier, 
He is very direct and he's very blunt. And it can leave you at the end of this kind of wondering, you know, like, where is our hope? There's not a lot of hope here. But as I said earlier, there is hope in this book. There's hope at the end of chapter nine, the people of God. There's hope even in chapter five. Because, you know, three times in chapter five, God says to the people, this is what he says, look at this, seek the Lord and live. Despite everything that they had done up until this point, God was still giving them another opportunity, wasn't he? Through Amos, through his prophet, he was saying, listen, seek me and you're going to live. This judgment doesn't have to come. And he gave them 30 or 40 more years before it did come. But unfortunately, we know from history that they did not turn and seek the Lord. And so the judgment of God came. But what about you? What about me? This is the good news. The good news is that we still have time. By the very fact that you're here today, we still have time to turn and seek the Lord, don't we? And live. You know, in the first chapter of the book of Isaiah, there's a passage that is very, very similar to what we read in Amos today. Isaiah is talking to the southern kingdom of Judah. And he tells them something very similar to what Amos said to the northern kingdom of Israel. He refers to them as being as sinful as even Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at what he, what he, what he wrote. Isaiah said, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you, when you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifice. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. In other words, I can't endure those two things at the same time. I can't endure you willfully sinning against me and worshiping me at the same time. That I can't take. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. So what do they need to do? Verse 16, they needed to repent. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice. There's that word again. Rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. And then listen to this beautiful invitation from the Lord, the end of all of this. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I want to ask you to stand with me if you would. Friends, your sin and my sin are as red as scarlet. But because Jesus' scarlet, crimson blood flowed down the cross that day, because he died on that cross in my place, in your place, to pay for our sins, this is the good news of the Bible. Our sins can be wiped away. Is that good news for anybody here today? 
Our sins can be as white as snow. We can stand before God as pure and clean and innocent as the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's what the Bible says. What do we need to do? We need to turn to him and live. And I want to invite you to do that. If you're here and you've never turned to the Lord yet and surrendered your life to Jesus, that's the invitation. Come, receive his grace, his forgiveness, his cleansing of all of your sin, a new start. It's offered to you. If you're here and you're already a part of the family of God, you're already a believer in Jesus Christ, you know, I believe there's a very strong call, isn't there, in this passage for us who are in the church to examine our lifestyle and whether what we do and what we say on Sundays is lining up with what we do the rest of the week. And maybe as you've heard this word today, God has just brought conviction through his spirit that there's a part of your life right now that really has no place in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ. I would invite you to come and to kneel and pray. Pray for yourself, pray for others. You can kneel right where you are and pray and seek the Lord. Just get real with the Lord for a moment. He sees through all our pretense anyway. He already knows the deal. He knows what's going on. And he says when we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to cleanse us of all of our sins, to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. And that's the invitation for us as well, to start new, not living a hypocritical lifestyle, but living authentically, seeking after the Lord. You come. Speak with me, one of the other pastors that's here. Come and kneel and pray, whatever you need to do right now as we sing.